The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to have each of you participate in today's conference call that will deal with customs and border protection issues and travel-related issues. Joining me in today's panel are two of my brilliant, smart, knowledgeable attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm that I'm proud to call my esteemed colleagues, Aaron Finkelstein, who's been the managing attorney at the firm and who's worked with me coming on to two decades or close to 20 years, and uh, Adam, uh, and who's our managing attorney, as I just said, and Adam Rosen, who's an assistant managing attorney and who's been with the firm close to 15 years. Wow. So between the three of us, we have close to almost 100 years of experience that we're going to share with you this afternoon. Um, as I said, the focus today is CBP and travel issues, which continues to remain of great interest uh, under the Trump administration, even though it's been about a year and a half later since he came into office in January 2017, and it's, I guess, July 2018 now. We will begin with the border slash CBP issues, and then we'll move on to issues dealing with problems at the consulate, visa-related issues. So with that, Aaron, um, would you briefly discuss what are the kinds of current issues that we're dealing with at the ports of entry? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing that people need to be aware of is people feel that when they go through CBP, when they come through Customs and Border uh, Protection, uh, they're going through and they present their documents and it's a walkthrough. It's just merely documenting simply how they're coming into the country, documenting their entrances and their exits. People may not be aware that that's actually a separate adjudication that's taking place, an adjudication or a process for which they're admitting somebody into the country. And nowadays, under the Buy American, High American executive order, the changes in, uh, in documentation that they've done for the Foreign Affairs Manual, we're certainly picking up a stricter level of scrutiny than we've seen before. Uh, this stricter level of scrutiny can result in aggressive questioning. It can result in review of electronic devices um, and ultimately could lead to something as significant as an expedited removal. So I think we should start there with expedited removal and kind of work our way through the different things that can happen at the port. Okay, sure. Before Adam gets to it, Darren, so let me understand. Are you saying if I'm coming in as a non-citizen or does it include for me a citizen, for example, where my phone can be searched, my laptop can be searched, my iPad can be searched. What do you? This is scary stuff that I know we've started hearing. So actually, it can be for anybody. When you come into the port of entry, there's a right for the United States to secure its borders. The right that the United States has to secure its borders, it means even a U.S. citizen, even a permanent resident, certainly somebody on H-1 or F-1, they have the right to do adjudications. They have the right to review your documents. They have the right to see what cash you're bringing, what items you're bringing into the United States. They have the right to make sure that you have the right to be there and what you're bringing in is the correct things to bring in. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Aaron. So with that, Adam, we'll get to have you discuss a little bit about expedited removal. Sure. So as Aaron said, the the most severe um, consequence in coming in 
are attempting to come into the United States through Customs and Border Protection, uh, when being refused entry into the United States, is an expedited removal order. And so this is how it seems. This is how it sounds. It is very quick. You come into the United States. You're questioned by the CBP officer. This will happen where you go through primary inspection and the officer is looking at your passport and documents and refers you to secondary inspection. And it's in secondary inspection when you're being questioned by the officer and when the officer can go through your bags and your electronic devices, as Aaron was saying a moment ago. And so what ends up happening in this scenario is that after asking a number of different questions and going through your electronic devices, the uh, CBP officer ultimately comes to the conclusion that they are going to refuse you your request to enter the United States. And by doing so, they issue a removal order, which and it is expedited because you are then put back on a plane to your home country. And the consequence, the immediate consequence, is that they're also canceling your visa and imposing a five-year ban on entering the United States, which also includes being issued a visa to travel to the United States. Is there any waivers available? So there is a waiver that is available, technically speaking. Uh, You can apply at the U.S. consulate for a non-immigrant waiver. um, And it's something that you would apply for along with your visa um, at the consulate. So if you're going to apply for, let's say, an H-1B visa, um, when you go in for your visa application, you're going to be disclosing on your DS-160 about the expedited removal and the visa cancellation. You'll, you can also include something in your application and include documents. But there is no specific form, and it is entirely discretionary on the consular officer's part whether they recommend it or not to, for approval. And one interesting thing about these waivers is that one of the criteria that they look at is how much time has passed since the expedited removal took place. So if you're going back this week and you're applying next week on an H-1B with a new company or a month later and you're requesting a waiver, that's probably going to cut very much against you. And it's also important to keep in mind that the consular officer, assuming if they don't recommend it, there's no appeal of that. Uh, Even if they do recommend it, it ultimately gets decided by Customs and Border Protection, the same people who issue the expedited removal order, and they're taking a very long time to actually Mm -hmm. issue those waivers when they do because approval, once the consular officer recommends it to them, is unfortunately far from guaranteed. Yeah, it's really sad and scary. And what we've been seeing are the expedited removal orders usually happen in a variety of different kinds of situations. For example, with an H-1B, if there is a discrepancy or a mismatch in the address between, for example, the work location and the home. So if your flight, for example, is from India, let's say to Chicago, and it shows that you're supposed to be working in San Francisco, they're like, excuse me, why are you coming to Chicago? So there's clearly some kind of a mismatch. Or many times they will go ask uh, look at the person, as Aaron had said earlier, look at the person's cell phone, find maybe a resume, and find that the experience was exaggerated on the resume. And that's the reason that they got the job. And they believe that that is visa fraud to get that H-1B client and client to give you the position. Um, and then they'll ask you questions about your job or your job duties, and they will see if there's a mismatch between what was sent to the USCIS work location, job duties, job description. Um, This is both with CBP and at the consulates. We see similar where there's a mismatch. That could be a big, big problem. Uh, Also, we see 
the whole issue about the contents of the luggage. For example, a person, let's say, coming on an F-1 student visa shouldn't be carrying experience letters and uh, resumes because technically you're coming to study and not coming to work. And then they will, if they open your luggage and they find stuff that they believe is a mismatch with what you told them you're coming for, they will send you back, pack your bag and send you back like Adam said. Or if they find something on your electronic devices because they are looking there as well. Well, it's all very, very scary. So, Aaron, what can be done after so the expedited? The thing is the most critical point is to try to remember everybody's names, whoever you spoke to, try to write it down. Some of the names will be on the documentation that you're given. You'll be given a document which is called an expedited removal order as well as some type of Q&A, question and answer, that'll list out the back and forth that was going on between you and the officers. Try to note the time that you went into secondary and try to note the time that you came out. For example, if the interview was four or five hours long, that's significant to the person's mental uh, condition at the time that he was answering questions. A lot of times you can look at the Q&As and you can find the exact moment in time when the individual just couldn't handle it anymore or lost it or started to say yes, whatever you say, yes, yes, yes. And then if you can show a significant amount of inconsistencies in the documentation that they use to make their decision, you can request the um, CBP to reconsider their decision. And we've had a fairing to good success in actually getting those particular decisions overturned. But even once you get it overturned, that's good because now you don't need a waiver. But when you go to the consulate, there will still be notes in the system at the consulate. So now, again, you have to at least be prepared to explain what happened, why it happened, because a lot of times you'll end up having to deal with what's called soft refusals or withdrawal issues because when they convert it, they'll convert it to something called withdrawals. And then you'll have to explain it. And if you can't explain it at the consulate, you may have trouble later on getting a visa. Ultimately, if you're not able to overturn the expedited removal, there is no appeal from that decision, and you are stuck with what's there, and you do have to deal with moving forward into the waiver spectrum. Okay, so let me just get this right, Aaron. You're saying that a person who potentially was just subject to a minimum five-year bar that Adam just referred to could, by contacting the CBP, just go ahead, cancel that whole thing and say we're withdrawing the admission or cancel it because there was an error or misunderstanding in the at the port of entry at the airport cancel it so then now this person doesn't need to apply for a waiver doesn't need to be stuck outside for two three four five years while hoping to resolve this issue so very similar what i'm saying is that there's a that they go through a process to identify a basis for removing you from the country that process gets you to admit certain facts and they put those facts into evidence and based on those facts they put into evidence they make a determination to remove you but if you start agreeing with everything that they say, for example, and you say, no, I was never stationed at Seattle. No, my employer never paid me. No, I never worked for X, Y, and Z as a, pre, as a job that I had prior to this job. And then we're able to produce, yes, he was working in Seattle. Yes, his employer did pay him. He was just saying whatever you wanted him to say. All of a sudden, it casts doubt heavily on that Q&A. And when you cast doubt, you open up for negotiation, and sometimes you can get it overturned. Also, an example you gave is a very good example where there might be an embellishment on the resume. 
Well, the embellishment on the resume says, not only do I need a bachelor's in computer science, but I need three years of experience. So clearly he didn't violate the rule for not for H-1B because he had the bachelor's, but he did lie to his sub to his end client mm -hmm. by saying, I need the three years. Mm -hmm. It's cause for termination. It would not be cause for expedited removal. And sometimes you can reach back to the consulate officers, to the CBP officers, which we've done many times, and said, you guys got this wrong. And they'll go ahead and they'll take away the expedited removal. The problem is usually by that time, the person is out of the country already. So an only thing that they can do once they take away the expedited removal is they'll allow it to be a grant of withdrawal of admission, which means you don't need to do a waiver, but you still have a problem because the consulate's going to demand an explanation of what happened okay. before they issue the new visa. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, so talking about withdrawal of admission, um, Adam, would right. you like to explain? Sure. That? So when a person is disembarking in the United States and presenting themselves to CBP officer in primary inspection, this is when you present your passport and your H-1B approval if you're coming on an H-1B. You're applying to the CBP officer for admission. And as Aaron said, this is a separate adjudication. What the law does provide for is for the foreign national to withdraw that request to be admitted into the United States. And so at that point, the CBP is putting that person back on the plane. The difference is the consequence. There is no five-year bar to um, a person's re-entering the United States if they have been allowed to withdraw their application for admission. The major challenge is the fact that uh, CBP, CBP may not agree to it. CBP may say, no, we're going to issue an expedited removal order. The um, the visa will be canceled, so if a person is allowed to withdraw their application for admission, uh, the visa will be canceled. But as Aaron said, there will be notes in the system. And so a person might think that they skated by and got away safe because CBP allowed them to withdraw their application and that all that happened was the visa was canceled. But the notes of the conversation, there's usually also a Q&A um, with a document that's signed where the officer in the course of the Q&A is saying, would you like to withdraw your application? And the person says, yes, of course, because who would say no to a request to just withdraw because there's no concrete consequence. But as a practical matter, the person's going to have to go back into the consulate, apply for a visa, and We've seen instances where a person had been allowed to withdraw their application for admission to the United States, and when they went to apply for the, to the visa at the U.S. consulate, the consul officer made a finding under 6C, finding that there was fraud or misrepresentation in connection with the events that were, um, they were questioned about by CBP. Yeah. Tell you, it's really scary, and we are also seeing all the time, I'm sure all of you as employers, as people working in HR, are seeing both issues with renew with prevention, with denial, with withdrawal, and also with I-94 mismatches. Uh, Aaron, briefly explain the nature of the problem and solutions. Sure. So the I-94 problems come up usually in, um, they come up all the time, but there's two, two, two times that you see them most frequently. One time is if a person has a passport where the date on the passport ends prior to the validity period of the 797 approval. So when the person comes into the country, the person thinks that they're going to get the full period of time on their approval, on their um, 797 approval notice. 
but the CBP officers are instructed that based on reciprocity rules, based on the rule of comedy, which means that we do to onto others what they do onto us, that they're instructed that they can only give for many countries up to six months prior to the expiration of the passport. Or for India, which is one of the special countries, they can give up to the date of the expiration of the passport. So people are saying, oh, I've got the approval. They've put it in the system. And they don't even bother to look at what's on their um, document until they find out later when they're going for a renewal that, in fact, their status had expired sometimes, unfortunately, a very long period of time. That would be one of the situations where CBP would be correct. One where CBP would, in fact, be incorrect would be a situation, for example, where I've gotten a new approval with another company and it's for three years. The visa in my passport was from my old company, which is still valid. I come into the country and they give me the stamp in my passport and they give me the a digital I-94 card up to the old expiration of the, of the petition from my old um, petition and not from the current or new petition. Uh, that would be a mistake that could happen that would be correctable at the port of entry. Uh, and these are types of things that happen quite frequently. Uh, sometimes they make a mistake, and instead of giving you to what's called the PED listed on the visa, the petition expiration date, they'll give you till the expiration of the visa date. That happens quite frequently. Or the passport. Or the expiration of the passport we already mentioned. And many of these types of things that happen when they short you are approvable, are you're able to go back and able to do I-94 corrections after the fact. Okay, thank you, Aaron. What are the other kinds of issues that we're seeing, Adam? So, as I said before, there are referrals to secondary inspection. And so some of these are random because this is part of what CBP does in an effort to secure the borders. Um, but there may also be information that is popping up in their system that prompts them to want to conduct further questioning with somebody. Uh, it may be an inconsistency between what the person is saying and what the officer is seeing on their tickets. Uh, for example, if somebody's coming into the U.S. on a visitor visa and is bring, seems to be bringing a lot of luggage um, and saying they're here for a visit, they may get referred to secondary inspection. So things like that that a person coming into the United States does not necessarily think is a big deal, uh, CBP is looking for those things that the way the person is conducting themselves is, uh, is it consistent or inconsistent with um, what they're saying. And then when they're in secondary inspection, this is where the searches of electronic devices are going to happen, text messages, emails, um, social media. And when a person's coming into the United States seeking admission, they are not in a, they're, they, CBP has the authority to search, and a person's not able to refuse. For U.S. citizens, there are some more limits on CBP, but even then, as Aaron said, they have considerable authority because they can make sure, you know, is the person bringing in um, you know, if they're bringing in money, how much money are they bringing in? Is there anything that they're potentially doing or trying to bring in that would be illegal? So there are even a U.S. citizen, there are um, there's authority by CBP to conduct searches of a person's bags and devices. Absolutely. And Adam, the, the scary part, I guess, is um, all besides all of these p possibilities for being denied entry, or being harassed or given a really hard time, the fraud finding could create additional complications and right. waivers that we talked about. Um, also, there's a whole bunch of issues that, as you know, with young people now, they're very, uh, they feel they have a right to share their entire life story, what they did or didn't do on social media. And oh, 
and I went here and I did this. And last week for the entire week, I did, you know, I helped with this. I worked with this company. Well, on an H-1, you are not allowed to work with another company. You're not allowed to do certain work. You can't even do volunteer pro bono unless it's a pure 501c3. There are legal restrictions. So before you go tooting your horn as young people and you as employers, as people in HR, need to share with your employees that they need to be very careful what they're posting that is available and can be found by a CBP officer, because that could be the kiss of death. I know one person, for example, when he was coming into the country, was showing off and gave his uh, business card while on H1 about the side photography that he does on weekends as a hobby, which made it look like that was his job, and they actually denied him entry, and he has never set foot in the country for decades, for years. You're talking serious consequences, so please be careful. Aaron, are there any strategies for success? No, well, first of all, Sheila, thank you for the compliment. I just posted yesterday with my son and my grandson, so um, I'm feeling very young right now, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> Um, but but I agree that it's it's overly done and you have to be very cautious about everything that you make public. The first thing I'd recommend is if you have employees that are traveling, um, it's strongly recommended they travel during business hours so that if questions come up about their employment, about various things, uh, they can contact the company, they can contact the end client, they can verify things in real time. Uh, that's something that's uh, that's critically important. Uh, another thing that recently came up with with one of my cases is it's a very good idea to have them read the petitioner letter and the explanate the end client letter, the explanation of the job duties, because recently one CBP guy um, actually went ahead and gave a Java test to sit down because the guy said he was a Java programmer. So he said, you're a Java programmer. Here's a Java test. We want you to answer these questions uh, in secondary, which was something unique and kind of like, wow. So it's a good idea Did for them to- Did he know the stuff? He knew, yeah, he knew the stuff. But it was a very good idea for you to make sure that you're aware of exactly how the lawyer phrased what your job is. Because remember, lawyer brains work different than IT brains. And so we might perceive something and phrased it one way, and it was accurate and correct and good enough for an approval. But yet the IT person or the person coming in as the foreign national might perceive it as something differently. Okay. Um, finally, um, it's a good idea of Sheila mentioned already about being aware of the online information. My last tip would be it's a very good idea also that if you have smartphones, you've all heard of smartphones, I recommend bring dumb phones or don't bring computers or bring something very basic or delete some apps because there's two levels that government is allowed to access you. One level is the level of what you have physically in your possession, and the other level is something that they have to go and transmit or reach out for electronically to receive. If it's not something physically on your device, it's not open for a review at the port of entry. I've heard some people say, clean out your phones, delete your deleted items, try to do it, but they can still go after it if they have to. Uh, do investigation, you're better off buying a brand new phone with no data and no information and no carryover. I've had people say that as well. And by the way, for many of you as business owners who are continue to be lawful permanent residents, remember that the government, the CBP, can search your electronic devices, your phones, your laptops as well. Uh, so whatever happens, please do not sign the form I-407 if they stick it under your nose because that's the record of abandonment of lawful permanent residence, because sometimes they will tell somebody, well, you've been out for too long, or you've done this or that, and hence you've lost your green card. 
but for a lawful permanent resident, they cannot force you to sign it. You are entitled as a permanent resident to a hearing in front of a judge if you refuse to sign the for- form I-407. And we, of course, this was very common about a year and a half ago when the first travel ban executive order under the Trump administration was issued because people didn't even know that they weren't allowed to enter the country when they were mid-air about to land in the United States for those four or five days till, I guess, the lawsuit was lost. Um, and the, the government had to allow per- lawful permanent residents to enter and couldn't take away their ability to travel abroad. But scary stuff can happen. So you want to be proactive and careful and cautious. Yeah, I almost never advise my clients to sign the 407. The standard in front of a judge is like clear, convincing, and unequivocal. It's a hugely high standard, uh, to quote Trump. Uh, and the thing, and the additional fact is that by the time they get around to your case, it'll be a year, two years, sometimes three years later, where you'll have further strong documentation of your ties to the United States. So. Fabulous. Okay, so I'm just watching actually the time, and we're about 25 minutes. Um, into and we usually try to do them between 30 and 45 minutes. So we now have actually completed the CBP portion and we want to try to touch upon issues that happen at the U.S. consulates with your employees, with your family members, whatever that you need to do. So we could either um, do it as part two or we could do a quick summary overview now and if necessary we could do maybe a part two. But let's try and do as much of it as we can because we have about 15-20 minutes. So what kind of increased scrutiny are we seeing, or is there any increased scrutiny at all, Aaron? So there's no official word of increased scrutiny, but there is a preamble that was added to the Foreign Affairs Manual. The preamble is the Baja Maga, the Buy, Buy American, uh, Hire American, and Make America Great Again uh, preamble, which essentially is causing the officers to look at everything under, I would say, a little bit of a stronger microscope. Seems to be a heavy focus for consulting companies, especially third-party placements, right, to control issues. Uh, there seems to be a higher level of 221Gs in that situation where they're delaying cases. Sometimes they can be as little as two weeks, as much as six, seven, or more weeks where they're actually instructing people to do investigations in the U.S. to verify the bona fides of the job, where the job is, what the job is, who the end client is, duration of the job, those types of things. So officially, I would say no. Unofficially, I would say consulting companies are definitely experiencing a higher level of scrutiny. Absolutely. And I know we've heard Trump repeatedly mention the phrase, the term extreme vetting. Uh, Adam? So the State Department has been um, gearing up for this. They've been steadily getting things going to collect more information about social media, uh, social media uses by visa applicants. Um, they've also been um, putting in place, putting in changes to the Foreign Affairs Manual to ask questions about um, use of public benefits um, in relation to the provisions of the immigration law under um, public charge. And uh, I think for many um, professional level workers, um, which this is something that's probably less likely where given their wages and wage levels that the public benefit and public charge issue is probably something that they're less likely. But um, this is something that they are scrutinizing. And I think some of the things that Aaron mentioned about uh, buy American, hire American, and make America great again, that's also adding to the um, increasing extremeness of the vetting. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Aaron, I know that there's been a series of cables issued to consular officers by the U.S. Department of State. 
Um, just can you briefly go over what what's going on with that? Sure. Big one that came out was to that the officers are supposed to remain vigilant in their adjudications. In other words, put it under a microscope. That all visa decisions are national security decisions, and they should perceive that as as they go forward and look at it from that color. Uh, there's been an ordering of the posts, including consulars, law enforcement, intelligence officers, to identify populations that might warrant, warrant increased scrutiny. So not only make determinations, but try to identify groups of people that should be looked at in a different way. Uh, there's an increasing of the use of discretionary uh, SAOs, security advisory opinions, uh, for potential security threats, which result in more 221G reviews, refusals or uh, additional administrative processing. And security advisory opinions are one where they can send back to the Department of State in Washington, D.C. for an advisory opinion as to whether or not they should approve the visa if they're not feeling comfortable or for various issues that are associated. There was even one cable which was later rescinded uh, as a result of some litigation, which was regarding the executive order that provided the increased collection and inspection of applicants' social media presences to try to be able to look at that before you go forward. Uh, finally, uh, you can see limited interviews uh, to, um, to no more than 120 per day, per officer per day, to allow for closer scrutiny of the applications. So you've noticed that de- the timelines going further out. Uh, the cables, igno- as a matter of fact, the cable also acknowledged the increased backlogs would result, and in fact they have. Okay, thanks, Aaron. Adam, did you want to add briefly anything else about these cables? Um, the the only thing I would say is two points. One is that they are looking they're looking at the security issues. Um, they um, they could potentially do a test as they might do at CBP to test a person's knowledge, and um, they you know they can also ask to see electronic devices, um, whether it's to call somebody who's listening on the phone or checking information against what a person is telling them. Um, the refusal to provide that could result in a 221G asking for additional documentation um, or further investigation that they may have. So that's going to be a judgment call that a person is going to have to make on whether to agree to the request or not. Okay. Thank you, Adam. Um, regarding the scheduling of the visa itself, I guess there's a little bit of good news, I guess. At one point, I know that they were taking several months, two, three months, just to schedule mm-hmm. an HRL interview. Now the average time has dropped. It's generally between three and six weeks on average, about a month, depending on the consulate. But there is a backlog. I find generally in the fall, the backlog increases a lot late summer because students are applying for visas, tourists are applying um, and H's and all of that start in October. So it gets really, really busy at this time of the year, starting in late summer, early fall. So schedule your visa appointments for your employees ASAP. Uh, what about other issues, other delays, uh, Aaron and Adam? Well, there's the 221G, which is administrative processing, or they're requesting more information or more documentation. So if they're going to request more documentation, it'll be reflected in the form they give you, Mark 221G. However, if they're just in a situation where they can't make a decision right at the window, where they want to delay or buy time in order to make the decision, uh, they can also issue a 221G just for administrative processing saying, we'll get back to you. Thank you. Adam? Um, and if they're issuing a 221G because of administrative processing, sometimes they've told people it'll take six weeks or 30 days. The fact of the matter is there is no specific time frame, and it could, it could take a couple of weeks. It could take an unending number of months. There's really no way to know for certain. And oftentimes, these security checks um, or background investigations are happening in the United States by people other than the consular officers, so they themselves may not even know 
what exactly is being done and when exactly it'll be finished. Okay. So. Any other reasons that you're looking at security issues, problems, administrative processing? Well, we talked about administrative processing before. So what could be administrative processing? So one thing is they don't want to make a decision at the window because they think there might be or it's possible that there are ineligibilities and they want to look at it closer. Um, another reason is they want additional documents related to the eligibility, such as end client letters, project descriptions, updated information, more pay stubs, etc. Uh, sometimes they're referring the case to the fraud prevention unit for an investigation, and they want feedback from them before they go forward. Um, or preparation of a revocation memo for a counselor return of a petition approved by, by USCIS. So sometimes they're delaying the time because they're putting together documentation and they're going to gather what they need from you to send it back to their uh, KCC uh, to get them to write a memo to request USCIS to revoke the petition that was originally approved. Okay, thank you, Aaron. And the other thing is, whenever the consular officer generally issues a 221G, they're supposed to provide like a sheet, a checklist, which says this is why we're denying it under 221G, and they'll check off one of those columns. I've had people say, no, no, I never got anything. By law, you're entitled and eligible to get some reason why you're being denied. Look at that. Read that carefully. Also, remember every word that you discussed with the consular officer, because sometimes in the way the questions are asked, we can figure out what may be con of concern to them, because you as a layperson may not realize, but we do so many of these that we know we can see where their mind is going. Uh, also, if they're asking for specific information, obviously, I would suggest we provide the relevant and precise information. Don't give more, don't give less. They, the, and it should be understandable to a lay person because most consular officers are not experts in IT or computer-related jobs or technical inf uh, fields. And also we see that the consulates want to often, especially in India for H-1Bs or L-1s, they want to see the end client letters and they'll likely verify the position either themselves or through the anti-fraud uh, uh, unit uh, by contacting the end client to verify the job, the title, the job duties, et cetera. What about this whole issue with consultants? So consultants has been um, an issue, and it's morphed and changed into a different issues over time. But a couple of things that are flags for the consulate that they're looking for, as you said, they want to see letters from the consulate, from the end client, excuse me. Um, if the letters are framed from the end client, but they're not actually on the end client's letterhead, that's a red flag. So while there might be somebody who's the manager of the end client that was trying to be nice and helpful and give a letter, if it's not on the actual letterhead, that's going to be a red flag that's probably going to prompt a 221G and an investigation back in the United States. Uh, another thing to be mindful of is that when your H-1B petition is approved, if you included all the necessary letters in there and you're going to the consulate for your visa interview, but it's months later, it's a good idea to get an updated updated letters and client letter because if you're going to apply for a visa and your H-1B petition was approved six months ago, it's more likely that the consul officer is going to want to see documentation that's more recent than the approval or the filing of the H-1B petition to verify the existence of the project of the end client. So sort of be mindful of what's in your H-1B petition, be aware of what's in the H-1B petition, and the documentation related to the, the project that you've um, been working at and will be going back to. Thank you, Adam. So let's briefly talk about this whole process, which can be very, very helpful, called the Interview Waiver Program. Aaron and Adam, I'll ask you to go over it maybe in just a few minutes. 
because we are actually doing okay on time. We're only about 37 minutes and we have up to 45 minutes. So we've actually caught up really oh, well. Wow. Lawyers can speak fast when we have I to. I guess sometimes. <laughs> so Aaron, I'll have you start if you don't mind. So with all this extra time that we have, no. Um, so one thing is the interview waiver program that, um, that Sheila mentioned. And that's a good way to, devo- uh, to avoid delays that are associated with the visa application because interview waiver program means there's no interviews, uh, that no interview is necessary, and that all the documentation can be sent to the consulate through a courier. Um, they're available for renewals. Uh, the Janu- there was a January 27th Trump executive order which required visa interviews for all applicants, but interview waiver program is statutory. It's by law. Uh, and it's con- and is continuing at least for those applicants renewing within 12 months of their previous expiration date. In other words, this was not something that an executive order could, uh, for lack of a better word, trump. Okay, Adam. So keep in mind that every country consulate can have their uh, different criteria and can set their own rules for something like this. In India, H and Ls can qualify for the interview waiver interview waiver program. If they've previously been approved for the same visa category, um, the visa, the previous visa uh, is in the same category that is unexpired or it expired less than 12 months ago. And the previous visa was issued in India. So if somebody's obtained their previous visa in another country, they may not, they're not going to qualify. And that there have been no visa refusal for any visa type since the last visa issuance. And so when we're talking about visa refusal, keep in mind that this includes a 221G. That's a visa refusal, not just denied the visa and the consulate refused to issue you the H-1B at all um, or another kind of visa, uh, H-1B or an L. Uh, but it means a 221G because they need a document even if ultimately the visa was issued. Um, I, I will say that the one thing this does not apply to is blanket L-1 visas. That's a separate kind of visa application. Um, if you're applying for an L-1 visa based on a blanket approval that the employer has, uh, you're going to have to go into the consulate for the actual interview where you have to meet the clearly approvable standard um, in place for that. And speaking of the approvable standard, even though you qualify for the interview waiver program, you still have to submit supporting documentation for your visa type. Uh, I'll give you know an example would be for H-1B should submit pay stubs from the employer, bank statements covering the last 12 months, client or vendor letters if applicable, contact information for managers, W-2, 1040 tax forms, resume or CV. There should be something that you submit that supports the application or the petition that you're providing. But aren't we seeing a lot of consulting companies where they're asking the consultants, almost never granting them the visa waiver, asking them to come in for the interviews? Right, so approval is not guaranteed for applicants who use the visa waiver program. It's a good place to start, and hopefully it'll help you avoid having to go there, but it's absolutely not a guarantee. Uh, Consulates must randomly select a percentage to attend an interview, and officers can request any waiver applicant to attend an interview. So if they're doing Baja Maga, which I keep coming back to the Buy American, Hire American, Make America Great Again uh, executive order, then a lot of times if they see it's a consulting company, if they see the slightest thing is out of line, they can simply call it for an interview. They truly want to make America great again. They better be starting to use more immigrants for everything because America is a nation built by immigrants, but the hard work of immigrants. And so it's really interesting that a person whose two of his three wives are immigrants chooses not to to focus on the, the negatives of immigrants and everything bad that they've done to America. But as we know, that's another topic for another day. 
Um, so with respect to tips for visa interviews, you know, uh, as many of you probably know, the actual visa interview at the consulate will be probably between one minute and three minutes max, where they will focus, look at how you're talking, looking, making eye contact, creating, responding, answering questions. They're not interested in the paperwork and documents. They are trying to size you up, whether you're a legitimate, bona fide, et cetera, because they have done thousands of these kinds of interviews, because they are apparently supposed to do 140, 150 per day. So if they've done thousands of these, they immediately have a pretty good sense of whether they feel somebody is unethical, fraudulent, hiding stuff, doing something illegal. And sometimes they're wrong, but that's their preliminary sense. Adam? So be well prepared, and that means be familiar with the details of your documents. Know what's in the, the letter from your H-1B petition about your, your job. Know what's in the client letter. Um, know what's in all those documents, because if the counsel officer asks you a question, the counsel officer is, a, is looking for your answer not to see your documents. Because again, as Sheila said, the counsel officer only has a few minutes, and, the, and if they're asking you a question about something about your job, what you're going to be doing, uh, where you're going to be working, they want to hear the answer from you to verify it against what they have and not to see, not to look at your documents. Um, and so the details of your case matter and they are important for as your case to be familiar with and, and be able to uh, refer, if they ask you where something is, if they do want to see a document, know where it is so that you can pull out and hand it to them. But first and foremost, be able to answer those questions directly and as succinctly as possible because, again, the consul officer in his few minutes is going to be more annoyed because the interview is taking longer than expected. Yeah. In fact, when I was at the consulate in Hyderabad, Recently, mm -hmm. a few months ago, the uh, head, the chief of the consular section, the chief of the NIV section, mm -hmm. and a senior consular officer all said to me, it's really annoying when a minute, two minutes, three minutes later, the person finally explains, oh, I'm doing this for this, which made sense, because we were almost ready to give a denial or give a 221G when what the person said made sense. Don't wait for them to ask you. Be proactive. And they ask you, don't ramble and go in circles. Just give them the information that you know so that they can hopefully give you the approval within a minute or two minutes rather than then issuing a 221G and then finding that it can be approved by then six months later, as Adam said, you've lost your job, you've lost your assignment, your family's story, you know, you are separated from your family. I know we really need to wrap it up, but Aaron, do you, or Adam, one a quick thing about the L1 visas that you want to just add? Well, yeah, right. Aaron, why don't you go ahead? Well, I was just going to add one real quick thing. It's just that when you're dealing with certain situations where you could actually be at a different work location than perhaps what was filed in the petition, don't do that. Actually go and get the amendment or get it changed, such as successor and in interest or in Simeo Solutions, we're in the same city and state, but perhaps at a different client site. Any discrepancies almost guaranteed a 221G, and potentially it's a it's not going to be one for additional evidence, but potentially even a denial from Okay, that. thank you, Aaron. And I think, uh, Adam, you already talked about the blanket approvals yes, that they could be denied. Yes, very the clear, high standard. clearly approvable standard. Mm -hmm. But that it still allows you, once you're done at the consulate, your employer will go to USCIS to file an peti individual petition. If it's denied because of the blanket. Right. Right, and if the, especially the degree of the person's degrees and directly matching, it's right because you have to be unlike with the L, for example, an L1B specialized knowledge. You do you have to be a professional in order to apply for L1B visa at, with a blanket petition at the consulate. But being a specialized knowledge professional is not required for a petition filed with USCIS to be approved. So that is a distinction with an important difference. Thank you very much. So because we are coming very close to the forty-five minute mark, 
and we are very cognizant of your time that you're investing to educate yourselves and make your companies more profitable so you can focus on what you do and we can help you at the Murthy Law Firm with what we do. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, Adam Rosen, our assistant managing attorney, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, thank you for participating in today's conference call on CBP and travel-related issues and visa issues for you, your family, your employees, and we wish you a very happy summer and look forward to continuing to take very good care of you at the Multi Law Firm. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Multi Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.